Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 237, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. This episode, a computer science major from Princeton has created an app to detect whether or not text is written by ChatGPT. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, many students can remember the details from their favorite television show, but struggle with remembering things their teachers say in class. We ask a cognitive psychologist why. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Classes Miss podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how was your holiday break? It was absolutely amazing. Good. Want to know why? Why? Because I got all the rest in the world, and it was much needed and much appreciated. I enjoyed time with family, but it was just great to take a break. That is so good to hear. I'm glad, and um, I guess... You guys, you got you, you all are on that new schedule, right? So it was, yes, but the, but the Christmas break was really unchanged from what it typically is, right? It was unchanged, but it was refreshing. Just you know, after having two weeks in October and then turning around and having two weeks in December, it's kind of like it was right on time, and I didn't feel burnt out, and I didn't feel negative about returning. I was excited to give back. And you know, you've got two weeks in March, right? Coming down well. Kind the of. teachers get two weeks. Right. I get one week, but still, it's a different atmosphere during that week. It's right. less children. It's a you know tutorial type program, um, and it's when our department really gets to you know flex our skills by putting on intercession. But um, the district slows down for two weeks, and so yes, it's refreshing. All right. So just before the Christmas break, uh, you and I um, talked on this show about ChatGPT, the new AI software that could wreck havoc in the classroom. We kind of had a discussion. It was brand new at the time. It has continued to be all the buzz over the holidays. Um, and um, just to kind of, you know, let people realize. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just want you to know I'm working on my dissertation, but I did not use it. <laughs> oh, you didn't? That's too funny. Well, th- there's some information that I'm about to share that would make you glad you didn't use it. So, um, okay. well, first thing I'll say this, just to show you the power of this brand new company, they are estimated their value to be at 29 billion with a B dollars. I mean, that's wow. real. That's that's just kind of an I estimate. I wasn't expecting that. And apparently Microsoft is considering investing $10 billion into um, chat GPT and then possibly tying it in to their Bing uh, actual uh, search engine. And there's even been some rumors and speculation about the fact that like Microsoft could just tie this into Microsoft Word. Right, like it's ChatGPT's built in. If they really wanted to, if they continued with this relationship with this new company, so that's yeah. amazing. Twenty nine billion billion. I mean, that's an estimate. That's kind like of who? Go back and remind us of who invented this. 
I don't even really know exactly who or how many people it is. I would have to dig that up. So give me a second. Okay. I'll see what I can find. But I mean, yeah, this is a startup. Um, but I mean, it's they're doing what some people felt like Google should have been doing. And Google's kind of been saying, hey, we can do this. We just haven't yet. It's kind of they've been their response. And apparently they're rushing to, to do their own thing. Um, so that it's just this technology that as we, if you haven't, heard about this, um, go check out our last episode, the one before this one, um, because it just is an amazing software where you can type in prompts and then it gives you these long responses, um, actually basically writing paragraphs for you, um, all through. I still have the same concern. How do we absolutely know for sure that you and I are not receiving the same paragraph. Okay, so that's why why we're continuing this conversation. First, I'll say this. Has there been any talk at your district about it? Has anyone been like, we need to do something about this? And it's not, but I will tell you that I shared a little bit with um, some of my um, instructional specialists, Mm -hmm. and they were blown away just like I was. But they haven't heard any chatter about it. So it hasn't made its way to my area yet. Okay, the New York City Department of Education has banned chat GPT from public school networks and devices <laughs> already. Like it's done. I bet. Um, I bet. Yeah. So they're just saying, you know, it's, it's a major concern. And, and while the tool may be able to provide quick and easy answers to questions, it does not build critical thinking and problem solving skills as, as you and I were talking about I in that agree. last episode. So there's that. And then the other thing that I found that was interesting was um, over the holidays, you know, and all the buzz about it, a young man who is a, let me see, he's a journalism and computer science major at Princeton. He's 22 years old. His name is uh-huh. Edward Tian. And he Very has- Very interesting combination there. Right, right, right. And um, and he's built an app to detect whether text is written by ChatGPT or it's written by an actual person. And he says <laughs> it's not foolproof, but he's already creating this thing that he's called GPT-0. Wow. And so you go to gpt0.me, so it's not .com, again, that's gpt0.me, and you see the site, and it's like, um, the, the headline is chat GPT0, and then the subtitle says, humans deserve to know the truth. You scroll down just a little bit, and it says, are you an educator? We're building a tailored solution for educators to responsibly adopt AI technologies in schools. We'd love to hear from you. Sign up below for our product wait list. Um, so, I mean, this is being built with educators in mind. And during the test, it is fairly successful at determining whether or not something was written by AI or a human. So can you give that URL one more time? Yeah, sure. It's gpt0.me. Um, and it says more than 30,000 people had tried out cheap GPT zero within a week of its launch. It was so popular that the app crashed. Um, and then let's see. Okay. The, the, the way it works is a little above my intelligence level, but I'll read you what it says. It says to determine whether an excerpt is written by a bot, GPT zero uses two indicators, perplexity and burstiness. And they're both, those words are in quotes. Perplexity measures the complexity of text. If GPT zero is perplexed by the text, then it has a high complexity and it's more likely to be human written. However, if the text is more familiar to the bot, because it's been trained on such data, then it will have a low complexity and therefore it's more likely to be AI generated. That is Mm. something else. Right. And I have to say, I appreciate that. So, hmm, low complexity. I would agree. 
Yeah. So anyways, if somebody in the education world wants to get on and like try that out with it, you know, they've done some samples where like they'll take something that's on LinkedIn that's written by ChatGPT and then they'll take something that is just like an actual article, say from like the New York Times or the New Yorker or something like that. And ChatGPT zero is capable of determining uh, whether or not, but then the the creator says it's not foolproof, and he has had some users uh, report that when it's put to the test, it's still not working perfectly, and they're going to continue to improve on that. So we are now into a whole new world. Science has gone too far. And um, well, I don't I don't know if our listeners um, imagine us sitting in a studio um, to record this this session or how they imagine us, but I will explain to you that I am taking notes <laughs> because it was on my mind. You know, I don't want to ask too many people about it because then I'm introducing it. However, if it lands in our area or if we do have a couple of quiet ones out there using it, I'm excited to know that there's an app out there that can determine that. But not just that, you know, I was thinking about maybe later in my, my next life becoming a professor we need more than just turn it in to help us make sure that plagiarism isn't happening and, you know, that people aren't cutting corners when they're given an opportunity um, to provide empirical writing, empirical research. Yeah. And, and so technically, is it plagiarism if it's created by artificial intelligence? It's got to be a form of plagiarism. I would agree. No yeah. different than self plagiarism if you are using the same essay for multiple courses or you know something to that effect that's self-plagiarism you need to modify it it needs to be different so at the end of the day it's not original you didn't write it it plagiarism might not be the perfect technical term but it's inappropriate i think i could envision it being used and it's going to get better and better over the next several years but i can envision I it being used today as almost a crutch in the sense that like, all right, I'm having trouble writing this opening paragraph. And, you know, you type your prompt in chat GPT gives you this awesome response and you take bits and pieces of it and then mix it in with your own stuff. And well, you know, I always play devil devil's advocate when you present something to me. Let's think about it this way. You pop in a prompt, a sentence to get yourself a paragraph can we expect or hope that people will at least take that paragraph and modify it to help them with their essay that they're writing instead of just taking it as is? How about that? Yeah. I mean, and, and is that okay? Block, I guess. Is that know? okay? I don't, I don't know the answer. I mean, it, it's good what the world's going to come to. Uh, so I don't know. If something well, that's, that's pretty disappointing. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Yeah. So, but it's absolutely amazing for the creators. <laughs> yeah, this is true. This is true. Big so business on cheating. <laughs> anyhow, I, I, I wanted to just keep that conversation going a little bit. It is still a hot buzz topic. Uh, I know around much of the education world and probably will continue to be, but that's going to do it for today about chat GPT. Are you ready for today's bright idea? Yeah, you got to hurry up. I'm trying to get over to the chat. GPT. <laughs> <laughs> In today's Bright Idea segment, we are going to answer a burning question. Why do students remember everything that's on television, but seem to forget everything you, the teacher, says? Our guest, Dr. Daniel Willingham, is a psychologist and professor at the University of Virginia. He's also the author of Why Don't Students Like School, which dives into how the mind works and what it means for the classroom. Dr. Willingham, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Uh, today, we are really just trying to dive into... The, the question of what makes information memorable. And, and I guess first we need to start with 
what makes things in general memorable. And, and as you write in your article, you kind of start off with a few things that I think a lot of people will recognize. And, and one is like emotions and repetition, right? That's right. And uh, emotion is uh, emotion is actually uh, very interesting because emotion doesn't reliably guarantee that you're going to remember anything. It's sort of an accelerant. Uh, when When you have moments of high emotion, uh, it typically will boost the signal, so to speak. Um, but if there's very little signal there to start with, there's no guarantee that emotion alone is going to do it. And in a way, repetition has some of the same flavor. Repetition usually helps memory and repetition is probably more important than emotion. Um, but repetition is not a guarantee that you're going to remember something. You uh, as we'll, I'm sure, get to in a moment. Mm-hmm. What What's really important in memory is the type of mental manipulation that you do with the content that you're hoping to remember, or even the content that you don't, you're not hoping to remember. Um, because of course, most of what we remember is not stuff that we especially meant to remember. It's just you think about stuff and then it sticks with you. So if you're thinking about stuff in the right way and that thinking is repeated, then repetition will definitely help. But if you're thinking about stuff in a kind of shallow way, not really thinking about it very carefully, uh, repetition is no guarantee that it's going to be remembered. Uh, so one of the uh, ways you can easily appreciate that is consider uh, some sort of thing that you have very frequently encountered um, and yet don't remember very many details of. So for example, uh, try, you can ask people questions about what a dollar bill looks like. Mm-hmm. If you ask people, think about, um, there's an eagle on the back of a US $1 bill. Uh, can you tell me what's written right below the eagle? No, I would or, guess like e purblis unum, maybe, but I, I, I might be wrong about that's that. That's a good guess. Yeah. Um, but that's actually not it. It's okay. actually of the United States. Okay. There you go. <laughs> right, which is a little odd. Um, but anyway, you get the idea. Um, right. You know, you think about the countless numbers of $1 bills that you've seen, you would think you really know, you should know what a $1 bill looks like. Uh, and yet all these details pass before your eyes repeated many, many times, but uh, it doesn't stick with you because, uh, and, and people's intuition about this is exactly right. You know, when you point this out, they say, well, I never really think about you know exactly what's on a bill and it's like exactly that that is the point so uh it's not that repetition doesn't help memory it certainly can but again i think a good way to think about it is sort of an accelerant to the right types of thought processes yeah, it, and you're you're steering me and, and our listeners when i say emotions repetition in the article like you, you point out these things that the these are not like while we might think that these are something that enforce memories it's not necessarily the case as as you've eloquently explained and one thing that you do say in the article that that stuck with me um ironically is that you say memory is the residue of thought and i guess we're gonna as we kind of dive into this we're gonna keep coming back to that that phrase right that's exactly right and and the uh it's it's a idea that's painfully obvious once you uh sort of spell it out um uh 
what you think about really determines what you remember. So the reason that you don't remember what's on the back of the $1 bill is that most of the time when you look at a $1 bill, you're not thinking about what's written on the back. You're looking in your wallet and you're looking for cues, probably looking for the one with George Washington on it or the one that has the numeral one on it. And that's all you're thinking about at the time. Uh, And so therefore, that's what you remember. And the same thing is true for more complex memories. And this is where we start getting into uh, how this might really matter in classrooms. Mm -hmm. Any concept, even a relatively simple concept like a chair, has many different features. And the feature that you're going to remember later depends on the feature that you think about at the time. So I can think about a chair as something to sit on, of course, and that's the typical way to think about a chair. But I can also think about a chair as uh, something that has glued joints, or I can think about a chair as something that uh, can serve uh, in a pinch as a step stool, or I can think of a chair as a weapon in a barroom brawl. So thinking about a chair is a little more complicated than thinking about a chair. Uh, Experiments show that if you prompt people to think about a chair Mm -hmm. as something with glued joints, the way a carpenter might think about it. And then an hour later, you say, so were you, you know, and we talked about some things uh, an hour ago, were any of the things like pieces of furniture or like a table or something else like that? And a substantial percentage of people will say, no, I don't think we really talked about that. Right. So even though I've given them a very good hint about that, yeah, one of the, one of the words that I asked you to remember was chair because I directed their thinking about chairs to this very unusual feature of chairs. That doesn't really match the way they're thinking about an hour later, which is the something to sit on feature of chairs. So when we say memory is the residue of thought, what we, what, what we're highlighting is the way the mind stores memory is very particular in terms of meaning. Uh, whatever it is, whatever features that you're thinking about at the time, uh, that's what you're going to remember later. And it highlights for teachers, I think, the importance of lesson plans, sort of um, being able to anticipate how kids are going to think about whatever happens in a lesson plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's very obvious that you, you know, you want to be sure that, that, that children are really paying attention to the lesson and that they're, they're going to be engaged and they're not drifting away. Uh, but this indicates, you know, whatever it is that they're thinking about, that's what they're going to remember. Not, they're, as I'm fond of saying, they're, they're not going to remember what they hope they're going to remember. And they're sure not going to remember what you, you hope they're going to remember. They're going to remember whatever they think about and that whatever they think about is very, very narrow. So you want to be very thoughtful as a teacher in, uh, uh, in how you try and shape that thinking. You, I think, draw a picture of this pretty well um, with a plot diagram example. Sure. Yeah, this was my nephew and uh, I was visiting and he was working on a homework assignment and he was supposed to diagram the plot of a book that uh, the it was a whole class assignment. Everyone had read the same book and they were supposed to diagram the plot. And the teacher thought, you know what, I'm going to sort of integrate art into this as well. That, that seems like kind of neat and it'll make it more interesting for the students probably. Um, and so the students were to make their plot diagram using as, as much as they could little, um, drawings to represent different aspects of the plot. 
And so my nephew got very caught up in the fact that he couldn't draw a castle <laughs> to his satisfaction. So what he was thinking about during the uh, during that lesson was, or during that homework assignment, he was not really thinking about the elements of the plot and how they relate to one another. He was thinking about drawing a castle. Uh, so this is, yeah, ex exactly a, an example of the kind of thing I mean when I say uh, anticipating uh, what a, a lesson plan will really prompt students to think about. And I guess the the better way to do that would be not to do it with drawings, but to do the plot diagram with words is what you suggest, right? Exactly. Yeah. My daughter, uh, thank you for that elaboration. My, my daughter had a very similar um, assignment several years later, and her teacher asked uh, the students to just use a word or a phrase to, uh, to indicate different elements of the plot. And I thought that was much more effective because then she didn't have to think about the drawing. She was just focused on, uh, the, how things related to one another in the, in the book. You, you kind of point out a couple things that, you know, often make great teachers and, and there's lots of things, but you mentioned that, uh, you know, sometimes it's teachers personality and, and the way teachers present themselves. But then the other part has to do with them being able to organize ideas and lesson plan in a coherent way so that students will understand and remember. And I guess, I say that because we have a lot of listeners who are teachers, like, let's give them some tips on how they can organize their lesson plans in a coherent way to, to retain them the memory. I mean, you really push towards the idea of working stories into your lessons plans, right? I do. And I think of this at a, at a very, when I say lessons in a story plan, like the natural thing that it sounds like I'm saying is like tell stories and lessons, which, you know, sure, there's no reason not to. Um, but I was actually talking about something slightly different, which is thinking about stories as a way of organizing the lesson plan, whatever the activity might be. Um, so I, in the book, I, I talk about the different elements of story structure and, and why story structure is so effective for memory. So stories, I won't go through the whole thing. It would take a long time, but mm -hmm. uh, just to give a little bit of a preview, the, uh, one, a, a really central element of stories is that they're driven by some sort of a conflict. Um, so, you know, think about any movie that you've seen and there's, you know, there's usually somebody working towards a goal and then there's somebody who's an obstacle to the goal. Um, and that conflict actually, I think, really has a place in classrooms, but it takes a slightly different shape, namely that most of the content that we're hoping our students will understand and appreciate is usually the answer to a question. It's a question that, you know, it's frequently sort of a timeless question that, um, that, you know, in history, like what were the origins of World War One or in math? Why do all of the uh, three angles uh, within a triangle sum to 180 degrees? Uh, and we go, we frequently as teachers sort of start moving towards the answer to the question uh, rather quickly. Uh, but the answer to a question is frequently not very interesting if you don't know the question in the first place. I think we move to the answer so quickly because the question is really obvious to us. Uh, but when you listen to a story, a storyteller will take some time to build up to that conflict, mm -hmm. let, let you get acquainted with sort of the atmosphere and the characters so that you're a little bit invested. And then they spring the big conflict on you. Uh, and so what I was suggesting is uh, building a lesson plan with a similar sort of scheme in mind. Think about the 
uh, content that you're hoping to teach is the answer to a question, formulate that question and then start with how can I get my students invested in this question, interested uh, in finding out the answer to this question. And then uh, that sort of can move the, the story, so to speak, along. But then one other element of stories that I'll mention, stories are very good on connectivity so that uh, they're logical. Uh, there's a there's a logical structure to the story. This event leads to this next event, which leads to this next event, and that makes the story much easier to follow. So, and I'm sure teachers are already thinking about lesson plans in that sense, and right. actually, you want it to sort of flow logically. But I think story structure adds another element to it because you're seeing the uh, the logical progression of ideas as building towards this goal. And you can think of it as just as it does in stories where new complications arise. They, one thing gets resolved and then that brings another question up. Okay. So now she's not going to marry him, but now there's this other person who's, who's entered and he wants to, you know, fight a duel with that guy. Now what's going to happen? Right. So these, these little complications and subplots are what move stories along and, uh, make them exciting. And I think the same idea can uh, frequently be worked into lesson plans. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because if I'm a, uh -oh. if I'm a teacher <laughs> and I'm listening and I'm thinking I'm a history teacher, I can, I can probably come up with a lesson plan where I identify the conflict and make this lesson plan more interesting. But what if I'm a, a science teacher or a math teacher, can you like pick up a, a common science or math topic and tell us like how you would find the conflict in that lesson? Sure. I mean, I'll just, I'll briefly mention, I mean, I'm a science teacher myself. And of course I teach at the university level, but I, I think about this, uh, this structure all the time and the lessons that I'm, uh, uh, the lessons that I teach. So in, uh, in science, I mean, we're, you know, we're science is, uh, fueled by questions. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I'll start with a question like, uh, why is it that, you know, you, Here's something uh, like a phone number and you can remember it for a brief period of time, but then the memory seems to disappear. So this is a common topic in cognitive psychology, uh, working memory, and there are lots of theories. Um, but the, uh, the natural progression is sort of scientists' understanding of this phenomenon. So you, you start off with, okay, so initially they had this theory of what's going on to explain that phenomenon that worked pretty well. And here's an experiment showing why it worked pretty well. But then there was this one curiosity. No one could really quite make sense of this little aspect of the data. And so then this other person had an idea about how to explain that, right? So there's the, you know, the unresolved aspect of the data is the complication. That's the the guy who comes along and wants to fight a duel with our hero. Mm -hmm. um, and so you just, you sort of move from there. And actually in Why Don't Students Like School, I give an example of a statistics lesson that, um, so closer to mathematics that uh, has the same structure. So I, I absolutely think that, that this sort of thing is possible. And I don't want to make it sound as though it's easy. I think it's, um, it can be a real challenge. Uh, identifying the question usually isn't that hard. Uh, and identifying the answer is frequently not that hard. It's building the lesson in a way that is going to really make sense to students and speak to students. That, of course, is very challenging. You recommend that teachers think carefully about attention grabbers. What do you mean by that? Attention grabbers, meaning you know, things that you do typically at the beginning of a lesson plan, 
that that will grab attention and that students will find interesting, exciting. Um, and there there are a couple reasons that uh, or sort of thoughts I offer on attention grabbers. One is frequently you'll hear like do the attention grabber at the beginning, uh, and that that that's sort of meant to be. Uh, serve the purpose that I've been describing of like, think about what the question is, like mm-hmm. the content that you want students to understand and appreciate is the answer. Uh, and so the attention grabber is supposed to make students sort of panting to know the answer. And the truth is, I, I, I personally think frequently that's less true than we hope it's going to be. Like the students enjoy the attention grabber, but it doesn't make them that excited to know what the answer is. Um, and again, that's just my opinion. You know, your, mm-hmm. your mileage may vary in your classroom. Uh, but the, uh, the, uh, the reasons, um, uh, in addition to the fact that I'm, I'm cautious about assuming that it always, uh, uh, ignites eagerness to know the answer. The other thing is in terms of grabbing attention, the beginning of a lesson plan is not when you need an attention grabber. Students are already, pay- that's like the one time during my class that I'm pretty confident everyone's paying attention is right at the start. I figure I've got a good 60 seconds or so when no one's drifted off, everyone's with me at the very beginning. And I feel like it's more like in, you know, a third of the way. And then again, two thirds of the way through a class. And I'm like, something else needs to happen now, whatever they've been doing, we need to change up so I can bring everybody back. And then the final thing that um, I've observed about attention grabbers is that they might work better instead of at the beginning of a topic, have it more towards the end of uh, a, a student's study when they can better understand what's going on. So I give the example in the book of the a classic demonstration in a science classroom of the egg and the milk bottle where you light a piece of paper in a bottle and you have a hard boiled egg on the uh, on the neck of the bottle. And what students see is it appears to them that the egg is getting sucked into the bottle after mm-hmm. the paper's burned for a little while. Um, and that is a, it's a little bit like a magic trick. Like, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, why in the world did that happen? And it might be interesting to do that instead after students have some background in the principles so that before you do the demonstration, they can actually try and predict what would happen and think think through what uh, uh, what the demonstration's about. Is that similar to, I like that example, is that similar to um, when you say like use discovery learning with care or is that kind of like a different thought? It's a little bit different because with discovery learning, uh, you know, once you've got this principle in mind that uh, memory is the residue of thought, you realize like if discovery learning sort of by definition um, you're a little unsure of what students are going to be thinking. Uh, there are, of course, times when that's going to be just fine with you as a teacher, but you should also bear in mind that um, if students sort of discover things that are not really right, uh, that are not um, uh, uh, insights that you want to stick with them, uh, then that's obviously more likely during discovery learning and memory being the residue of thought, that is what's going to stick with them. So you need to ask yourself, okay, what's, what's my strategy for that aspect of this lesson plan? How am I going to be sure that everybody's not only got it, but that this old memory that they initially discovered that I've not now decided is really not the way to go, 
is is in some way going to be erased, and the more suitable understanding is uh, is going to be its replacement. And again, the original question that we started with, I'm, I'm trying to take, you know, somewhat of a page out of your book and, and start with a question as we kind of started this interview. But it's just like, how, oh, do, love it. <laughs> how do we get memory to stick into our mind? Or as you put it, why do students remember everything that's on television and forget everything that I say is, is how you kind of um, wrote your article. I mean, so is is the short answer? It's just it all comes back down to that memory is the residue of thought. Is Is that essentially it? I think that's, yeah, I think that's a fair one sentence summary. And I'll tell you, I'm frequently asked, like, if you could name one principle from cognitive psychology that you think is the most important for teachers to know, what would it be? And that, that's the one I usually name. You, You know, we, everyone, of course, wants uh, lessons to stick with students after they leave your classroom, right? So everything really does turn on memory. It's not enough that they have insights in your classroom if they then forget them the moment they uh, step off the school grounds. Uh, memory is really central. And so uh, that principle of memory being so important to what sticks with us, uh, I think it is really important to sort of keep that front and center during lesson planning. Uh, Again, you're listening to Dr. Daniel Willingham with the University of Virginia. His book is Why Don't Students Like School, which I think you had a second edition come out fairly recently. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. 2020. That's great. And, uh, you know, it's it's very well rated on Amazon and I'm sure you can find it wherever books are sold. Uh, I imagine it's full of lots of thoughts and uh, cognitive research, as we just discussed, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I've, uh, I've been very happy with the, the reception the book has gotten. Um, teachers have, a number of teachers have told me they've found it really interesting and useful. So that's really made me feel great. Excellent. If somebody likes to keep up with you, where do you like to hang out in the world of social media? Are you a Twitter guy or what? I'm mostly on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, I do have a Facebook page, uh, both Twitter and Facebook. My handle is DT Willingham. Excellent. Well, uh, Daniel, are you ready for today's pop quiz? Bring it on. (laughs) All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, gosh. Um, You know, I was afraid when you told me there was going to be a pop quiz, I thought (laughs) it's going to be questions that I can't possibly answer. Or like if you gave me a week, I could maybe think of something that I would later be happy with. (laughs) You're, Um, you're, You're a thoughtful person, clearly. Well, I mean, like, you know, how could what what in the world could you eliminate and be happy among happy about among the core subjects? I mean, yeah, uh, I, you know, I'm tempted to like to to sort of uh, cop out on that and say something completely non-obvious like, well, it would be a cooking class, but I'd make them do like all of the standard like that would have science in it and it would have math in it and so on which is a little disingenuous, but I'm, I can't think of anything better. So that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say cooking that, that actually has literature and everything else wrapped up. In that's it. a clever answer. And it's the first time we've had that one. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? There needs to be greater emphasis on probability theory. because, And the reason I say that is that there's a bunch of research recently. This is a very contemporary answer because there's Everyone's, of course, extremely concerned about fake news and people's ability to um, differentiate reliable sources from unreliable sources. Right. And it turns out you can you can teach people some 
specific strategies to help them understand good sources versus unreliable sources on the internet. Sam Weinberg at Stanford has been especially um, a, a real leader in that. But when it comes to um, thinking things through, you know, what we would generally call critical thinking, it's very hard to teach anything that seems to be broadly applicable. Everything seems to be very subject specific. Like if you understand how to think critically about U.S. history, that's great, but it's not really going to transfer to thinking critically, even about European history all that well. Hmm. And it's certainly not going to transfer to thinking critically about math. Um, probability theory seems to be the best one, though, in terms of, yeah, in terms of making good decisions, because many... Uh, so that's a that's really a critical... Uh, decision-making is sort of a subset of critical thinking. Uh, but probability comes into many of the decisions that we make uh, in life. So I'm, I'm going to say probability theory. You're way smarter than me. Is probability theory almost like using mathematics to, to figure out what the truth yeah, is? It's under, yeah, exactly. It's understanding how to think about probabilities and how to use probabilities in calculations. Well, what does every child deserve? Every child uh, deserves to be in a, uh, I assume you're talking about in school, like what sort of school experience does every child deserve? Sure. Either school, life, whatever you think. I'm going to stick with school. And so for me, I think that every child deserves a uh, experience in school where they are in a space that is like, has uh, a good physical infrastructure where the, the heating works, the plumbing works, uh, there's no lead in the paint, there's no asbestos, um, and it the, the space is serene and beautiful. And within that uh, space, they are both learning um, skill, knowledge and skills that will enable them to uh, be happy members of society, and then also uh, enable them to learn what will make them happy as individuals. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Well, for today's educators, the short-term answer is COVID is the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And everything that um, COVID has done to public schooling and done to parents. What's the best gift to give an educator? time, but you usually can't do that. But if there's some way you can give them time, that's wonderful. I've never met an educator who's not uh, horribly overworked. Which teacher changed your life? This is going to sound very corny, but my wife. Oh, yeah? She, she, she's an yeah. educator? She is an educator. Um, and so that's not really what you meant. So it was a little bit of a cheat, but I'm going to stick with it anyway. Well, what, what'd she do there? I got to ask. Well, I mean, she's uh, uh, being my wife has obviously changed me in so many ways and uh, uh, being my partner and raising our beautiful family. Uh, but uh, sticking with the theme of the podcast and keeping it family friendly, what uh, what she's really done is um, uh, been a wonderful conversational partner in thinking through what makes for effective teaching. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I know psychology. I don't. Uh, I've never been a K-12 teacher. I don't know classrooms that well. And so I'm always trying to better understand um, 
teachers' perspectives and and children's perspectives. And uh, my wife has been an incredible teacher to me on that subject. Yeah, I'm assuming she's in K through 12 education. Uh, she yeah, she actually recently retired. But okay. yes, okay, great. Um, and uh, last question: What's the favorite book that you've ever read, fiction, nonfiction? Ultimately, we're looking for just a good book recommendation for our listeners. Okay, yeah, that, that's a much easier question yeah. than my than my favorite book. Um, I lo- well, you know what? I'll I'll name an author. I've I've enjoyed uh, pretty much all of Steve Pinker's book. Uh, Steve Pinker is a um, one of the best cognitive psychologists of my generation, and he also is uh, a fantastic writer. Uh, and so I would recommend to your listeners anything that Steve's written. Dr. Willingham, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us on Class Dismissed, and thanks for sharing all your wisdom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.